try not to have a conversation when we are emotionally spiked. (laughs) So if you just got an email, if you just got a phone call, if you just found out about something, you and I have talked about this before, time is the enemy of empathy. Very often we feel like we have to have a conversation right now. We have to deal with something right now. We have to respond right now. And that couldn't be farther than the truth. Whether we deal with this now, two hours or tomorrow makes no real difference in the grand scheme of life. But we get that tunnel vision and realize, think we need to do it now. And the emotional state we carry into that conversation is counterproductive. Welcome EI enthusiasts to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast by Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Emotional Intelligence Magazine is a one-stop resource for anyone looking to learn more about emotional intelligence. In addition to articles, videos, and recommended books to help you develop and expand your EI, Emotional Intelligence Magazine offers a platform for EI coaches and specialists so that they can connect with individuals who are ready to take their life or business to the next level. Learn more by visiting ei-magazine.com. That's ei-magazine.com. Or follow us on Instagram at the underscore ei underscore magazine. You can find these links and more in today's show notes. Today, we're going to talk with Michael Reddington about his new book, The Disciplined Listening Method. In addition to being a friend of mine and an amazing human being, let me tell you a little bit about Michael. So Michael is also a CFI, which stands for Certified Forensic Interviewer, and he has facilitated over 1,500 sessions and educated over 15,000 participants from over 50 countries. Through his business, Inquasive, He focuses on leadership training, sales training, and candidate interview training. And he applies the discipline listening method to all of these, which is a method that Michael created himself. And that's what we're going to talk about today with his book, The Discipline Listening Method. But don't let that throw you off if you're not in sales or you're not looking to listen to a podcast about leadership or corporate training. Here's the thing. The discipline listening method applies to everyone in all relationships. And I have found it to be extremely valuable, uh, especially in hindsight thinking, oh, now I know why that conversation didn't go so well, or all next time I'm going to do it this way. So I'm really excited to bring Michael to the show because he is just full of a wealth of knowledge. I had so many pages of notes. I could have taken more. So we just kind of go with the flow as I kind of bounce around just lost in so much information that he provides from this book. So without further ado, here is Michael Reddington. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Brittany. It's good to see you. You too. You too. Okay. So before (laughs) we talk about your new book, introduce yourself to our listeners so they can get to know a little bit about you and a little bit about the context behind the book, right? I appreciate you asking. Thank you. So I'm a certified forensic interviewer and executive resource. The shortest version of maybe the longest story ever is I had a series of accidental opportunities that I wasn't smart enough to say no to, ended up in the field of interview and interrogation, and spent a decade working for the world leader in non-confrontational interview and interrogation training and advising. And while I was working as an interrogation instructor, instructor and as a contract interrogator, I started diving deeper and deeper into the research as to why people would choose to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances, especially knowing that there were consequences associated with that decision. And the deeper I got into the research, the more fascinated I became. And that research eventually led me to the two key realizations that that we do talk about in the book. The first being that the best leaders and the best interrogators capitalize on the same two core skills, vision and influence. And the second being that the cognitive process that leads interrogation suspects to truthfully commit to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that lead employees to commit to saying I'll do it and customers to commit to saying I'll buy it. So with those realizations in mind, I transitioned away from my former organization, started Inquasive and and really dedicated myself to working with CEOs, leaders, sales teams, and HR teams to teach them how to apply strategic and ethical observation and persuasion techniques with the discipline listening method. 
know, I have to say the first time that you and I met, I was a little intimidated and I was so overly conscious of my body language, how I was communicating. And I'm sure you get that a lot. As soon as people know your background and what you do, do you find, and I know you talk about this in your book, the discipline listening method of how sometimes when we're trying so hard to be honest and be real, we actually come across like we are being dishonest. Did you pick up on any of those vibes for me? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. And it's, uh, it's an unfortunate, I guess, consequence of coming from the background that I do. And I'm sure many other people that come from a similar background deal with the same thing. You know, just last week I was part of a meeting. I, I serve on a nonprofit board and we were meeting with one of the groups that we're closely aligned with. And, our executive director decided to tell the people we were meeting with about my book, which I was initially grateful for. But then she started to explain my background, which then completely changes the tone for the upcoming negotiation that we're going to be a part of. So, yeah, it definitely has its pros and cons. But I can absolutely assure you that when I'm meeting people, especially along those you know social business lines, that it's it's really all about getting to know people and looking for opportunities to create value. So with the beginning of your book, I love how you start the book, by the way, because when you think about interrogation, you think like kind of hardcore stuff, at least I do, right? The metal chairs and table and the single light bulb hanging over you and the shadows, right? Harsh lighting. But you start the book talking about your son being this young little boy and the muffin story. And what stuck with me is you mentioned being excited when he told his first lie. Yeah. And some people may say, well, why would you get excited about your son telling a lie? And you talk about in the book that everybody lies. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we know that to be true, even though our society likes to tell us that, you know, we shouldn't lie and that's a bad thing. But I would love for you to share with everyone listening, you know, your take on lying and why you were so excited. Well, actually start with the whole story. What happened? <laughs> I forget. I they will. haven't read the book yet. So. I will. I will. Well, and maybe after this, they'll feel like they don't need to. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to read the whole if thing would, if you want. If they would see the two pages of notes I have. I think that pretty much would cover the entire book. Actually, not would it. I could have probably written like another six pages. But anyway, well, so yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for it. Thank you. So yeah, so um, I, I guess two things. My, the perspective that I bring into really all of my relationships, but especially with my son, is that we all lie and we're all supposed to lie. And far more often than not, when people lie, they lie because they feel like it's the last best decision they have available at that period of time under those circumstances. And for most of us, most of the time, if somebody lies to us, they're not lying to hurt us. They're lying to help or protect themselves somehow. And there's a mountain of research out there. If people really want to geek out, that shows that lying to a large degree is a necessary part for society to exist. Like if, if we didn't lie to each other to some degree, we may have never made it out of the caves. We would have clubbed each other to death, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago. So <clears throat> for me, when it comes to lying, it's in, and how I try to, I guess, moderate my reaction to that potential dishonesty. It has to do with the context of the situation. Who am I talking with? What's the conversation about? What's the context? What do they think their motivations or fears are? So particularly with my son and when he was young, for me, I'm well aware that children, well, it's, there's, I guess, some, some competing research here, but it's been long assumed that children start to lie between the ages of two and four, when they start to develop, um, and now I'm going to lose it, the um, theory of mind. And theory of mind is basically when we start to understand other people's emotions and expressions and what that might mean in relation to us. And generally, it's around four years old that children are assumed to start developing that. So that four-year-old mark has been kind of the baseline for a long time. Now, there's newer research that's out, both from the United States and the UK, that shows that infants lie. Literally, before they learn how to speak, they learn how to dupe their parents. And for all the other parents out there listening to this, we can all think of those times. So it's, you know, what is a lie? What is deceptions? All those things. So because I'm aware that especially in young children, dishonesty is an indication of cognitive developments, 
I wasn't horrified by this particular lie. And for the most part, and my son's name is Gabriel, and he's still young. For most of the lies that we've run into him at this point, they're all entertaining. It can be filed into any category of predictable lies. Now, I'm sure by the time he's a teenager, that's going to be a different ballgame. But for right now, as a, as a young boy, it's funny. So to finally get to the story, very long story short, generally our morning routine is my wife and I get him up. Then I start his morning routine while my wife is getting ready for work. And then we kind of pass him back and forth and my wife finishes his morning routine and then we all leave. I typically take him to school in the morning. And so when he was two years, about two years old, he came downstairs and for, he'd been asking for a while to eat his favorite muffins in the living room so he could watch his favorite Mickey Mouse show while he was eating breakfast. And we told him no for a couple of basic reasons. We don't want crumbs all over the living room. The table is where we have our meals together and our family, whenever possible, it's important that we have our meals together. Um, but also... I guess, I guess there's two more. We don't want bad habits or lazy habits, but I have a dog that has no manners, no manners at all. We rescued her. We found her abandoned out in the woods where we live. And I guess we never took it upon ourselves to raise her. Right. So you picture a two-year-old boy with a wobbling plate of muffins and a dog with no manners. And you know how that story ends. I don't feel like listening to Gabriel cry because Daisy stole his muffins. So that morning he asks me, hey, daddy, can I take my muffins into the living room? And I looked at him and said, if you take your muffins into the living room, Gabriel will try to eat them. We eat our muffins in the in the dining room and then we can go watch Mickey Mouse after. So he starts biting his muffins. At that point, my wife comes out of the bedroom, walks up, puts your hands on both of us to say good morning. And when she says good morning, Gabriel turns around, looks right at her, picks up his little plate of muffins and says, mommy, daddy told me I could eat my muffins in the living room and gets up and just starts walking into the living room. Like the whole thing was premeditated. And she looks at me with astonishment and I have tears coming down my face. And she's like, did you tell him that? I said, absolutely not. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to let him eat his muffins. I said, good for him. In his little brain, he just figured out that if he wants things to be his way, he has to tell that story a certain way. And so he did it. And I don't want him to grow up to be a pathological liar. And I want him to grow up and have the morals and the ethics and the values that my wife and I share. But at the same time, I'm not going to blow him up for every little lie he tells, because believe it or not, that's only going to make him lie more. It's going to create a competition. He's going to try to hone his skills and it can have a real boomerang effect. So I literally laughed and let him have his win. I was like, good luck, man. If Daisy takes him, you're on your own. And tomorrow morning, we'll start working on this all over again. So that's the, the muffin story. I just realized as you were telling that, that that what you did start with a story of your son, but it was actually a different story. It was about yeah. listening. And yeah. I totally jumped to another story with no, that's okay. the muffin. So what yeah. we're going to do is since we're on the topic of lying, we're going to go with it. And then we're going <laughs> to kind of go back to, because in the beginning you talk about listening, which is what Correct. the entire book, you know, focuses on. There's, there's all these different components to listening and communication. Um, but yeah, so let's just keep with the lying topic for now. And then we're going to go back a little bit. So one thing that you mentioned is, you know, our, there, there's this feeling and I, I really connected with this. I love to catch people in lies. I have to be honest. Like I would be lying to myself if I said that that wasn't something I looked forward to doing. And that may not be in a very, you know, emotionally intelligent thing to do, but it's something that I have that awareness around. And it's something that I'm working to not get so excited about. But when I read that in your book, I had to just stop and pause for a moment and say, why in the world do I get so excited to catch people in lies and tell them that they're wrong? And then it changes everything because like you said, it makes them want to lie more and you talk about saving face, right? What does that mean? And how do we do that in a way to also kind of console ourselves in the process, right? Allowing yeah. that person to save face, but then also feeling good about it ourselves. Yeah. And so there's a couple of things to touch on there and I'll offer my I believe unsolicited and completely biased and personal opinion on why some of us really enjoy catching people lying and, and feel good about it or, or makes us feel better about ourselves. Um, some of it is probably a self-defense mechanism. Like I, I protected myself there. No one could trick me there. 
Um, I honestly believe, and again, this is my opinion. I don't have anything to back this up other than what lurks between my ears. Um, but I believe a lot of it is an opportunity for us to project our moral or ethical superiority in any given situation. I think that likely has a lot to do with it. Um, so you have the self-defense, you have our own value lens or moral lens that we look through. Um, but then it's also become this glamorous is too strong a word, but it becomes like a cool thing to talk about, whether we're talking about it in a social media post or with our friends and family or whatever it is, it becomes a cool thing to discuss with your friends, like one to put in the win column. Sure. So Very all ego of the- driven. You took the words right out yeah. of my mouth. And I know that's a topic that you're spending a lot of time working on yourself, but it is, it's very ego driven and it's self-serving and make no mistake. There are absolutely times where we keep ourselves out of bad situations by catching other people lying. So I don't want to say that it is a, it's a skill or a trait that is bad or unnecessary or only evil. There's lots of great that can come from it. The, the problems start to stack up. When and I won't drive too far down this rabbit hole right now, I promise. When we start believing some of the myths and misconceptions, or when we start making blanket assessments without considering the context of the situation, or we make it purely a contest where I win, you lose, I'm more superior, and we lose value in the what we're trying to get or, or where we could go with this situation. So, in my opinion, that's kind of how we get there and where it comes from. Onto the topic of saving face. I am a full believer that if you want someone to say or do something that they don't currently want to say or do, at least 85% of that, and 85% might actually be low, 85% of that battle is helping them save face and protect their self-image. The number one fear that will stop most people from doing most things, especially sharing vulnerable information in sensitive circumstances, is that fear of embarrassment, is that fear of being judged. So, Unfortunately, there are things that we can do either with our body posture, with our facial expressions, with our tone of voice, with things we say, the questions, the the verbiage of our questions that cause people to become defensive just against that feeling of embarrassment. And all too often, if we go into a conversation thinking, okay, I'm going to catch Brittany lying today. Well, number one, confirmation bias sets in and Mm -hmm. talk about being hypersensitive about body language. You scratch your nose because (laughs) it actually itches. And I'm sitting here saying, oh, look, she lied. She just scratched her nose. and It has nothing to do with it. So confirmation bias is the big one. And then not only am I going to likely see it because I'm, I'm convinced, but now it's the tone or the mindset that I'm taking into the conversation, which begins to put real limitations on what we can achieve together. So I guess I'll wrap it up with this because I don't want to just rant for our entire conversation. I'll wrap it up with this and say, in any given conversation, if we can stop and realize how does this conversation impact us, not just short term or long term. So and I'll, use, I'll go back to using my son as an example. My, my son is my son. That means I'm in for a long ride. I'm well aware of this. So one of the things that I have to be mindful of, literally from before he could speak, when he was a teeny baby and he was crying because he has no idea what he's feeling or why he can't communicate with the world. And I, and I, he just, I would literally, I would pick him up and I would just walk around my house with him outside and I would just whisper in his ear, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And I would, in words that he can't understand, but I'm literally whispering in his ear and trying to calm him down through words. And as his vocabulary has developed and as his situational awareness has developed, we talk through everything. So what I'm trying to do now consciously is lay the groundwork for when the real problems come in 10 to 15 years or or however long, because I know that he is keeping a mental record, whether he realizes or not of how mommy and dad, he treat him when things aren't so bad to determine how he's going to handle it when things do get especially challenging. And to transition that to our business relationships and even outside personal relationships, if we can understand the greater impact of our relationships, we can change our mindset as we go into them and try to get out of that gotcha mentality and more into that long-term value creation mentality. Everybody that's listening is probably like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I don't think even two sessions, you and I talked before, we're going to split this into two sessions because 
because I just have so many notes. I think we should do like six sessions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an easy guy to find. If you'd like to have me back, we can make it work. Um, no, this is, this is great stuff. So I want to kind of put everything in reverse. Cause like so, I said, I jumped super ahead of myself. That's all right. Um, with the story, but when you actually started the story about your son, you were talking about yeah. the phrase that he learned. Was it in preschool? It was actually, it was, like, it was click, in daycare, even prior daycare. to preschool. Yeah. And it's click, click turning mm-hmm. on the listening ears. Yes, Is that right? Yes. Yes. And, you know, and then you kind of lead into another story talking about um, when you were with the cab driver and the whole purpose mm-hmm. between those two things is what we define as listening. Yes. Is it really listening? Are we mm-hmm. listening with intent? Are we listening with a purpose for an outcome? You know, like you were saying with the cab driver, you just wanted to get where you were going. For sure. You didn't want to have to, you know, worry about him kicking you out. You wanted to make <laughs> him happy. You were nodding. You were saying yes, but you weren't actually listening. It wasn't until the conversation became very personal that you both connected on a deeper level. Correct. And I think that's a problem that we teach children is that it's like we tell them what listening is in a very surface level definition. Listening is looking at me. Let me see your eyes. I know a lot of teachers would say that, right? Mm -hmm. Let me see your eyes. And I even find my husband looking or doing something while I'm speaking with him. And I get upset because I'm like, you're not listening to me. But then he repeats everything that I just said. So I think we're giving this false impression of what listening is. Some people could be very much listening to us, but they're not looking at us, right? Um, There's just so much here. I haven't formulated a question yet for you, but it's kind of like artificial listening. Yes. 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 And so I'll I'll jump in here and see if I can get to where your question may or may not have been going. So I'll, I'll reference the turning my listening story and the cab story, and I'll tie it into this. Actually, I'll start, I'll start with my son. So as someone, you, you yourself have written one book uh, and counting, I believe. I don't want to be the one that's letting cats out I've got out an outline bags, for the second one in the works, yeah. In. But so, so you've written a book as well. So um, for me, of the, the whole roller coaster journey of, of writing a book, um, and maybe this was the same for you and for others, just starting it was the hardest part. So I can't tell you how many times I wrote the introduction and threw it away, <laughs> just started over. And I just, I wanted something to start that I could just start the book off with and say, okay, that fits where I'm trying to go. That's emblematic of me and my life. And this is good. And we can go here. And one day we, my son wasn't doing a good job listening. And my, my wife said to him, Gabriel, are you listening? And he literally reaches up like his ears are knobs and he turns and he says, click, click, my listening ears are on. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, how did I not have that sooner? Like that's been hitting me in the face for years. Where, awesome. where has that been hiding in my brain? So that's where I started the book with the whole like click, click. I turned my listening ears on daddy. And that is something that he learned. I want to say at about two years old in daycare, both my wife and I work. Um, and it was something that they taught him in daycare. And it actually worked out really well in home. It was something we could use at home. And do you have your listening ears on? Turn your listening ears on. It worked quite a bit. Um, and it does lead to the question that I asked right after that. What does it mean to truly listen? And when I think about the concept of disciplined listening, disciplined listening, for me, the concept of disciplined listening traces back to a seminar I was teaching in Ireland when I was asked a question by a CEO from Germany um, who said to me, you're taking active listening to a whole new level. And I politely answered, no, we're not talking about active listening. We're talking about disciplined listening. And I just went on about what disciplined listening was. And later on that year, I was talking with a mentor of mine and I just happened to mention disciplined listening and he's a former Marine. So he nearly knocked me on my backside when he was asking me, wait a minute, what's disciplined listening? Where does that come from? And that is literally for me, the genesis of the concept of disciplined listening. So when I was going through additional research, putting this manuscript together, I spent some time going back through even some of the original writings on active listening. And of course, all the people that have taken in so many different directions and active listening is good. And and the active listening skills we've been taught are good. And this is not an and, but this isn't stop doing the old thing, start doing the new thing. They're good. We should do those things. Essentially, active listening equates to attentive listening. 
Because it is true, if you believe that I'm listening to you, then you're more likely to continue communicating with me. So if I maintain good eye contact and I smile and nod and mirror your body language and summarize what I hear and all of these things, you feel like I'm listening. While I'm ignoring you, <laughs> thinking about what I'm going to say next or what I need to do next or whatever it might be, or a situation where your husband is doing absolutely none of those things, but is actually fully engaged with you, has heard everything that you said and is with you every step of the way in the conversation. So when we talk about elevating from active listening to disciplined listening, those active listening skills should come with us. However, now the goal isn't listening to make you think I'm listening because that's what I'm supposed to do in this conversation, but it's listening to unearth hidden value. There's got to be something here that if I just pay close enough attention can turn out to be the key to unlock doors I didn't know I needed to walk through. And coming from the background of interview and interrogation, my former teammates and I, we didn't get called when they had evidence. We got called when there were multiple suspects, no evidence. Everybody had already been interviewed at least once. The case was a mess. Now we're coming in. So in those situations, like listening and looking for hidden keys to invisible doors is really what we needed to do in order to resolve the situations. So that ties into the cab story. And this one could be much longer, but I'll keep it short. Um, very long story short, I had the wonderful opportunity to spend about a week, a little bit longer, uh, teaching in the Middle East several years ago. And when I was in Amman, Jordan, the driver that had been hired for me had lived in the United States, I believe he said for 22 years, he had been in Dallas and Miami and, and some other places. And so I had a three hour window my last day there. And he talked me into letting him drive me around greater Amman to show me the area. Cause that sounds like a perfectly rational decision for a civilian traveling by himself with two suitcases. Totally. So my wife and I were dating at the time we weren't married yet. And when I told her of this idea, she was not as nearly as enthusiastic about it as I was. But the next morning, yeah, I walk out of this like fortified hotel in downtown Amman, Jordan, and I step into this dude's car and off we go. Um, and I will actually tell you a piece. I don't think I put it in the book. So I'll, I'll tell you a piece of the, the story that I don't think made it into the book. Um, so as we're leaving, he's taking me to the Dead Sea. It's the first place we're going to go is to the Dead Sea. It's kind of a once in a lifetime trip. That's the once in a lifetime destination. Let's start there. And literally it's downhill from Amman to the Dead Sea. Like if you just get to the hill and put it in neutral, you're going to stop in the water. So the whole way down, he's small talking with me. And I'm going to be honest, I really wasn't listening to anything he was saying. And I'll be more honest, I didn't really care about anything he was saying. I'm a single civilian. I'm more concerned. Now, I had no real reason to be scared about my safety. I don't want to oversell this story, but I've watched enough movies that I figured I should probably pay attention. So to your point, like I'm paying attention to landmarks and roads and where am I? And how far have I been? And how do I get back? And let me not make this guy angry at me and all of these things. So he's talking about where he lived in Miami and where he lived in Dallas. I think he was a manager for Blimpy Subs at one point. So I was like, oh, yeah, cool. I ate there once. Like just literally I'm appeasing him the yeah. whole ride down. Um, here's the part that I didn't put in the book. So I'm about half, I'm about 20 minutes into this ride. It's probably 45 minutes from Amman to the Dead Sea. And he asked me if I need coffee because it's early in the morning. And I tell him, no, man, I'm good with the water. I've never had coffee in my life. And he literally looks at me in the rear view mirror and says, you've never had coffee. So no. It's never appealed to me. He says, well, coffee saved my life. I said, it did. He said, yes, I was an alcoholic and the coffee is what keeps me from drinking alcohol. And I said, well, congratulations, man. You should be proud of your achievement. And he said, yes, I had to leave the United States after my third DWI. Oh my gosh. I'm and he's driving you around. <laughs> <laughs> so literally at that point in time, I'm like, Maybe I should have listened to my wife or a girlfriend at the time. Like, this wasn't such a good decision. So we get down to the, to the Dead Sea and he was awesome. But we get down to the Dead Sea. And so here we are in the parking lot of a hotel that's under construction. And it just sort of hits me because it's a physically beautiful location to stand. And it just hits me that here's this kid from New Hampshire of all worldly places standing at the Dead Sea in Jordan looking at Israel. And I'm just kind of taking it all in being in this part of the world where so much history has happened. Um, and I won't get into the whole thing, but my driver started asking me about religion. And I was like, oh, this seems like an unsafe conversation. Um, so I avoided it to the best of my ability. And finally, he said something along the lines of, it's okay, American, you can talk to me. And I was like, not if you call me American, my name's Mike. 
And so we opened up the conversation and as the thaw chipped away, honestly, mostly on my side, because I wasn't sure where this was going. We ended up having this wonderful conversation about world religion and world conflict without taking sides. He told me that he was a Palestinian Arab and his family had olive groves just across the Dead Sea um, and what that conflict meant to him and his family. And after, after our conversation, he literally said, you must come with me. We have time. Drove me up through the mountains to a military checkpoint. One of the scarier moments of my life. <laughs> um, took me to a place where his cousins work, where I sat in a back room and had tea with them. And then he took me to this Greek Orthodox church where they had unearthed the oldest mosaic map of the Holy Land known to exist. It's things a couple thousand years old. And I got to see that. And literally, he gave me a hug at the airport. And that's the abridged version because I don't want to take up our whole hour time slot here. Um but between the story of my son, what's it mean to really listen? Like, am I just listening so I know what to do? And the story of the the cab ride in Amman, um, when we change what we're listening for, when we elevate our mind's eye and we understand the potential greater goals or greater purpose of the conversation, that value-driven approach now helps us accept the risks associated with being vulnerable because the reward for the conversation is greater and the reward makes those risks more tolerable. Yeah. I think another valuable lesson in those stories is the mindset that we have of, I feel like we go into a conversation with what can I teach someone else instead of what can I learn from someone else? I think when we switch that narrative, it automatically puts us in that space of genuinely listening, right? For sure. It, for me, one of the things that scares me the most, either when I was in full-time investigations and a client would call and I would go out to their organization and they would prep me on the investigation and say, okay, we have it all figured out. Then why'd you call me? Mm-hmm. Hey, let's, let's get one thing straight. Whoever committed the crime knows more about whoever's investigating the crime unless the investigator is part of the criminal act. Like, that's a fact. They weren't there when it happened. And often on the business side, people fall into the same trap. A leader feels like she understands exactly what her employees are feeling or experiencing. A sales representative feels like he understands exactly what the customer needs, feels or experiencing parents, children. And we don't. Sometimes we get a lot closer than others but we don't. There's always something that we don't know. And again, one of the wonderful, I guess, accidental lessons from being forced to talk to people who wanted nothing to do with me for the better part of two decades was how being forced to take that learning mentality, allow myself to be surprised, allow some piece of information or some perspective or some idea to enter my brain and be like, wow, that's new. That's unexpected. Where can I go with that? Where's the value in that? As opposed to you know, going, going in with that validation mentality of, I know how this movie is going to end. So let me hurry up and get to the credits. Again, the ego heavily at play yeah. in that, because mm-hmm. if, if we don't want to feel ignorant. So if we don't know the answer, then that kind of tells us all, well, we're stupid. We, you know, which is not the case. Not at all. And then I think time, like you said, we want to hurry up and get through something. We don't want to take the time to understand and become curious, but so much wisdom comes from taking the time to become curious. Sure. Now tell me the difference between, let's say that we're we're genuinely curious, right? Mm -hmm. Again, I'm, I'm jumping really far ahead, but this connects so well. Yeah, yeah. We may be genuinely curious, but if we don't ask it in the right way, yes. then that can come across as what? An attack or an accusation. So how do we avoid that? Yes, it's a great question. At a conceptual level, and I'll get into more tactical, I promise. At a conceptual level, we don't want to ask questions based on what we want to say. The most effective questions are based on what we believe our audience needs to experience in order to feel comfortable sharing that information. And I'll use a silly example. I've talked about my family. I'll keep going. As part of that aforementioned morning routine, typically I'm the one that lets our dog out and feeds our dog. I'm not always, I'm not trying to steal credit from my wife, but it just, it typically falls into me. So in my wife, if I haven't done it, she'll do it. Like this isn't one of those, it's your job kind of deals. We both do everything every morning. It's just the order to which we get to it. So if my wife comes out and says, did you feed the dog? 
I promise you in her mind, what she's thinking is, do I still need to feed the dog because I'm walking past the dog bowl? I guarantee you that's what she's thinking. But when she says, do you feed the dog? How do I take it? She's accusing me of not feeding the dog, which is not what's going on in her mind whatsoever. So in this completely benign example, if she was to say, hey, Mike, does Daisy still need to be fed? Now it's not about me or her. It's about the dog. So again, it's a silly example as I just continue to share my entire morning routine with all of your listeners. So, so can, I, can I interject? Yeah. There was something that you said, and you're probably going to hit on this and I apologize because I'm no, jumping you're ahead. You're good. But you say that you is the most dangerous word in our vocabulary. Yes. I noticed I that was changed whenever you said, did you feed the dog? And yeah. do I need to feed the dog? Yes. Or does the dog need to be fed? Or does the dog need to be fed? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The word you is a front kick to our self-image. And we often don't think about that. So literally, if, if we do a business example, if I was to say to somebody, did you finish the, sp- did you finish the presentation? It can literally come across as an accusation. I'm accusing you of, I, I just want to know if you did it or not. But by me saying, did you, you take it as me accusing you that you didn't do it. So every time we say the word you, or if we go into somebody trying to be empathetic and they say something like, uh, Brittany, I know you're a hard worker. I know you have a lot on your plate. I know the, you do the best you can to stay up to speed and up to date with everything you have going on, but it's just not always possible with all the work you've taken on. And sometimes no matter how hard you work or how hard you try, you just can't keep up. Yeah, (laughs) I'm trying to empathize with you. And the whole time you're sitting there under a mountain of judgments. So you are receiving it entirely different than I'm saying it. But now if I take the word out and without going too far off the deep end again, start working in some of Robert Cialdini's automatic mechanisms of persuasion. in, And I use a story or this wouldn't be a story. This would be more of an illustration. I could say something along the lines of, Hey, Brittany, I know we've all had so much going on. And one of the things we have to step back and realize is our best people typically volunteer to shoulder a greater part of the load than they should. They end up taking on extra tasks, extra responsibility because they feel like it's their obligation. They care enough. They want to help everybody outside on the team. And unfortunately, we typically don't find out that they've taken on too much until we're right up against the deadline and trying to figure out where everybody is. So let me ask you this, and keeping that in mind, Brittany, how much extra assistance do you think you might need to get this project over the finish line in the next two days? Mm-hmm. So now by me using that illustration in, and this might not be perfectly grammatically correct, the third person, you know, our best employees tend to shoulder more because they care about, you get to group yourself into, it's like safety in numbers. Well, I must be one of the best employees because this is what I've done. And Mike can't be mad at me because he sees other people have done it. And in fact, Mike even actually sounds appreciative of it. So I'm not being judged. I'm not in any trouble right now. And it's not embarrassing for me to ask for extra help. It's it understandable. Very yeah. It seems it's very supportive. So now it would be easier for you to say, well, actually, you know what, Mike, in these two areas, if I could get a little bit extra help and save me two hours and we could still get this done. Now, you're not embarrassed. I've got the information I need. I can redistribute our assets to make sure we get the project done on time. Everybody's happy. Uh, I was just leading a session about a month or so ago, and there was an executive in the room who was on her phone a lot. And she finally looked up at me and said, okay, I'm going to ask you this. I said, well, okay. And it's clearly been consuming your time for a while now. Similar situation. She was under, she was up against the deadline and she, it, the project was due that day. And she texted whoever was in charge of the project project and said, are you going to finish the project today? And the person replied, no, I can't. To which she replied, why not? And now this whole argument starts where you've got the executive demanding that the project gets done today because it's the deadline the customer is expecting it. That's rational and logical. But now you have the employee on the other side who's put her flag in the sand saying, I can't do it. And now she has to defend that flag because her self-image, safe face, has been attached to it. So 
she asked me, well, what would you do? Okay. Well, how do I answer this without, you know, making things worse? Well, my first question rhetorically was how come we're waiting to the day of the deadline to ask these things? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming this deadline didn't just come up this morning. So maybe this was something we could have been working on, but that's a conversation for another time. So I just asked her, why did you ask the question that way? She said, I asked the question that way because if she said yes, I knew I didn't have to worry about it. But if she said no, then I knew I would need to follow up to figure out what I needed to do or change or who else needed to be involved. And I said, okay, so let's start with that. From now on, if you're just asking somebody a question, because if yes, good, I don't have to worry about it. If no, I have to do something. Start with the if no, then what question? Don't start with the yes or no question. Start with the if, no, then what? So if the if, no, then what question was, how much help do you need? Who else needs to be involved? Start with that question. Because if the answer is nobody, I'm going to be done on time today. You just got your answer. But now we're starting from a place of offering assistance as opposed to demanding compliance. So if we did kind of a similar intro that we just did, you know, we've all been doing a lot, taking on extra, it was a tight deadline, customer had last minute changes and unrealistic expectations, just thinking about how important this project is, how many more people should I allocate to help you get this finished today? Now, if she comes back and says, nobody, we're good. If she comes back and says three or four, well, we know where we need to go. So yes, that word you, although we often feel like we're either cutting to the chase or demonstrating empathy, often causes far more problems than itself. The other thing that you demonstrated was with your example is a closed-ended question. You only gave or you proposed a question that only offered two answers, yes or no. And I think we do that a lot too. We don't allow for other possibilities of that assistance. And so then that builds on that pressure and that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then we get into that mindset that we don't have another option because we weren't provided another option. You're right. So if okay. we phrase the questions in a way where they can save face and not be embarrassed by asking for some of those options, it makes it a yeah. lot easier to problem solve. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's go to this. So you have a quote in the book. It says, we do not get to decide if we are good listeners or communicators. Only our audience does. So, and, and I think that's so important because how many times have you heard somebody say, I'm a great listener. <laughs> I remember this one guy, I went to a networking event and he said, so what do you do? I said, I focus on emotional intelligence. Oh, I have a lot of emotional intelligence. And it's just funny how we label ourselves as these things that we can't necessarily define, right? Yeah. And I have similar experiences. And by the way, I'm not the world's greatest listener. I don't know who is, but I'm sure it's not me. I have plenty of missed opportunities. Um, plenty of Everybody around me, I'm sure, has a list of the missed opportunities I've had. But I had a similar opportunity. Uh, it was actually over the pandemic. I was doing some remote work with a few CEO organizations. And one guy kept telling me what a great listener he was, but kept cutting me off to remind me of what a great listener he was. And I'm literally sitting there going, there's some comedic irony in here that I'm probably just better off keeping to myself. But it's true. We are not, we can't decide, especially when it comes to something as nebulous as emotional intelligence or listening skills, we can't decide how good we are in any particular conversation. Only our audience can choose that. I guess to some degree, the results will speak to that, depending on the conversation we're having, the information we needed to acquire, the decisions we needed to make. So I guess to some degree, the results can speak to that as well. But at the end of any conversation, two people are going to walk away with a set of emotions. Now, those emotions don't necessarily need to be extreme high or low. They could be pretty middle, pretty level, but we're both going to walk away with a set of emotions tied to that conversation. Being listened to often is more feeling than fact. I can, I can paraphrase or, or repeat to you things that you said to me, but depending on my ability to advance those thoughts, depending on my ability to connect those thoughts to other topics that we're discussing, depending on the tone of voice or facial expressions I use when I do it, whether or not I'm looking at my phone when I do it, 
So congratulations, me. I feel like I'm proving to you that I'm listening, but how I do it in the surrounding actions could actually give you the complete opposite interpretation. He's just trying to fool me. He's not really listening. So because being listened to is more feeling than fact, the things we do, which include the active listening skills, but go on, go beyond are important because the more you truly feel listened to, appreciated, respected, not judged, not embarrassed, the more likely you are to continue to share information. And when we think about it for the vast majority of your listeners in their business and personal lives, we more or less only participate in iterative relationships. How many people do we have one conversation with and then never talk to again? Very, very few. It's, it's extremely rare. So now if we think about our reputation as listeners, one of the things that we like to say is our personal brand as leaders, so much time and energy is spent on branding. Our personal leadership brand is literally built on our perception as listeners. If people perceive us to be good listeners, we tend to have a stronger leadership brand. Poor listeners, we tend to have a weaker leadership brand. So getting back to ego, If I go in feeling like, okay, I'm a good listener, I'm doing a good job listening, that might be true in my mind. But if you don't think so, it doesn't matter. And opposite, I might feel like I was cloudy today. I was on sinus medication. I I don't really feel like I was there. But you feel like I was attentive and I demonstrated things that showed that I was listening and cared and advanced the topics that we were talking on. You still walk away feeling like I listened. So, yes, it kind of goes back to that learning mentality versus feeling like we know it all going into the conversation. It's important as, as disciplined listeners, it's important that we take responsibility for how our audiences perceive our communications, our interactions. If we own that responsibility, we're more likely to do the extra things necessary. If we don't, well, if Brittany didn't think I was listening, then that's on her. It doesn't matter to me. I have other things to do. Then I'm falling short. Kind of, you know, it makes me think of my husband again, right? As many times as he can regurgitate what I just said, every single time he's not looking at me or he's doing something else while I'm speaking to him, it still comes out of my mouth. You are not listening. Even though he's proven to me time and time again, that he hears what I'm saying, because it's that interpretation of what listening means. To yes. Me. Yes. Yeah. And so you know, let's talk about getting on the same page Mm -hmm. because I think so many conversations end with lack of clarity because of that personal interpretation of how the conversation went. And so one person feels like they communicated effectively. The other person feels like they interpreted that message effectively. And then they both walk away with two completely different interpretations and meanings to that message. So what are some things we can do to ensure that we're on the same page? Great question. First, try to focus on the issue, not the person. Actually, we can even go previous to that. Try not to have a conversation when we are emotionally spiked. (laughs) So if you just got an email, if you just got a phone call, if you just found out about something, you and I have talked about this before, time is the enemy of empathy. Very often we feel like we have to have a conversation right now. We have to deal with something right now. We have to respond right now. And that couldn't be farther than the truth. Whether we deal with this now, two hours or tomorrow makes no real difference in the grand scheme of life. But we get that tunnel vision and realize, think we need to do it now. And the emotional state we carry into that conversation is counterproductive. So number one, trying to level set our emotions before we even get into the conversation. Once we're in the conversation, focus on the issue, not the person, and even focus on the resolution, not the consequences. And this gets back to elevating our mind's eye and are we focusing on the right area? If I go into a conversation thinking, I need Brittany to understand that this is how this is making me feel. This is the impact it's having on everybody else. This is how she needs to change. This isn't a conversation about value and advancement. This is a conversation about me convincing you. This is a conversation about me winning. And there aren't too many ways that this is going to go well for either one of us. But now if I stop and say, okay, we've been down this road before. I feel like Brittany should understand. I feel like we shouldn't be here again. But if I stop and think about it, if I can find a way to just get Brittany on board, It will save me X amount of time, X amount of stress, X amount of energy. She can then turn around and teach other people or leave it with this part of the organization or deal with the customer on my behalf moving forward. 
So now instead of looking at the short-term technical, I need Brittany to understand by changing my mindset to the issue and the resolution, if I handle this right, what problems am I really solving and what resolutions do I create? Now it's easier for me to compartmentalize my emotions, not think things, not take things so personally and work through the conversation in a way where I'm more likely to get us on the same page. Because if I do it right, I'll be framing the conversation about an outcome we both want. If it's, let's just say it's a communication issue with a customer. We, we both want a good relationship with that customer. We both want that customer to stop bothering us. We both want that customer to keep giving us as much money as possible. So if I frame the conversation around that, it's easier for us to be on the same page because you're not trying to figure out where you're getting attacked from, what it means, how should you respond, how should you feel. I'm not worried about trying to get the win or trying to force something on you. We're both trying to work together to arrive at an end result or an end state that we both understand and we both want. So focusing on the issue, not the person, the resolution, not the consequences, and elevating our mind's eye beyond that short-term tactical emotional component into that more long-term strategic outcome can really help us avoid that problem. I think that's crucial, especially like you said, when those emotions are high. But what about things that fly under the radar that you wouldn't think would be an issue? Because I remember receiving so many emails, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, where the email, there's there's no strong emotions, there's no conflict whatsoever. There's this normal dialogue about a maybe a project or a situation. And we think, again, we're on the same page with that person. But then when it gets to that day where we have to disclose this information or have our stuff together, we thought that other person was doing it and they thought we were doing it and it was never effectively communicated. So in a more passive situation, a more neutral where there's you know no strong emotions, what are some things we can do? Because I think oftentimes we think, oh, well, Obviously, like this isn't a big issue. They should know this, right? We don't do our due diligence. Yes. All the time. Yes. And unfortunately for all of us, myself included, and uh, the specificity of what we think doesn't always find its way into what we speak. 100%. So I can feel like I gave really specific instructions. I shared very specific expectations. But by the time I'm done, it's still pretty ambiguous to the person that I'm speaking with, or I said it in a way where they assumed that I was taking care of it. I assumed that they were taking care of it. So one of the things that we try to do is along the way, especially if it's like another project type analogy, have check-ins, um, try to at least go back and evaluate. What did I say? How did I say it? Where are we? But let's say we get to that point where you and I are supposed to come to the table. We each thought the other one was going to be doing it. Now here we are gulp. It, it, the emotions might not be strong in the emails, right. but by the time we get to the table and realize, wait, you don't have it. I don't have it. I thought you were going to, you mean, um, we both can probably flash really defensive, really fast because our natural response is going to be, it's not my fault. You were going to do this. And I wouldn't blame you or anybody else for thinking that way myself in, in that situation. So one of the things that we try to consciously work through is okay where did the communication falter? When we were having the conversation, what did I not say? What did I not ask? Where was I too ambiguous? And start trying to solve the problem. Is If we're in that situation, we can actually even go backwards a little bit further. If we're in that situation and we're working on blame, is this your fault or mine? The clock's ticking, the quicksand's getting deeper, and we're only making this situation worse. So to steal from your world a little bit, if we're going to try to come across a, a quick, emotionally intelligent solution, let's compartmentalize whose fault this is for yeah. later. Let's figure out how we can try to get what we need ASAP. And if I'm going to go by time while well, you do it, fine. If you're going to go by time while well, I do it, fine. If we do it together, okay, whatever. Let's get this done. Let's survive this little moment of crisis. And then once that's done, now we can go back and workshop. And we go back and workshop instead of the who should have done it. Say, like, hey, we both thought the other one was doing it. It's water under the bridge. We can't go back and fix it. Please do me a favor and walk me through what you perceive that I said 
that made you think that I was taking care of it just so I make sure in the future, I don't step in the, in the same landmines. And if you could both go through an exercise like that, hopefully after the fact, when the emotions come back down, now you can start deconstructing the communication process and realize it. Uh, we both teach for a living. Um, I coach T-ball. You'll be surprised how many similar situations I run into coaching T-ball that I do dealing with business professionals. <laughs> the analogies for both are often probably more than people would like to admit or be comfortable with, but literally breaking down. So a silly example, when the game was over the other weekend, I was going to shake hands with the other coach and I said, okay, team, bring it in. Now, normally when I say bring it in, all the kids run to me, but I meant go to the bench. I said, bring it in. I'm on the other side of the field. When I turn around, I got 10 four-year-olds standing all around me. And I just have to start laughing because they did exactly what I told them to do. I didn't say it right. And there's times where, and you've probably run into this, I, I give somebody or a group directions for a, an exercise we're going to do as, as part of a seminar. And then I watch two of the three teams start and they're not doing what I asked them to. Like, if two of the three teams aren't doing what I asked them to, I'm probably the lowest common denominator. I probably didn't explain it right. So being able to recognize and work back through that's a pretty critical skill. Yeah. So when you just said the last, the very last thing you said, if two of the three aren't doing it right, then it has to do something with how you instructed them, right? More than likely. But I also tie that into one of your favorite quotes from, uh, one of the TV shows, and I don't know what yeah. TV show it is. So I'm going to let you share that because I know you know exactly which quote I'm talking about. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> Go for it. So it's an old television show. It's called Justified. Um, it was on FX, I believe. And the main character, Raylan Givens, is this U.S. Marshal who has this whole story around him. And I mean, the TV has, show hasn't been on for years, so I'm not spoiling it for anybody. But if anybody wants to see it, I, I personally enjoyed it a lot. Um, but there's a line in one of the shows where he's in the car and he's got a guy in the car with him. And the guy is complaining about stuff. And are we okay with language on this yes, go podcast? For it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Raylan, the, the main character, looks at him and says, you know what? If you run into an asshole in the morning, you probably ran into an asshole. But if you run into assholes all day, and then he points right at the guy, he goes, you're the asshole. Then he just gets out and shuts the door of the car. Oops, says, I knocked my headphones off and walks away. Um, and to me, I don't think I could get away with calling somebody in a business situation that, but I try to keep that lowest common denominator mindset all the time. If I have five meetings today and Brooke comes home tonight and says, how was your day? And I was like, oh, it was so frustrating. I had these five meetings and nobody could understand the value I was bringing to the table. Nobody saw it. Five different meetings. None of them could. I don't understand it. Well, if I fail to get my value across to five different groups of people, what are the odds? It's five of their faults and not mine. And all too often, I feel like we go through life and it's, I don't mean to overdo it, it's everybody else's fault, but there's times where we have the opportunity to say, wait a minute, it's happened more than once. Maybe it's something I'm doing and then going back and making the adjustment. That's a huge part of self-awareness, right? Yeah. With emotional yeah. intelligence is being able to see that. And the reason I brought up, because I felt like that tied in so well, I think we don't, and that's part of communication. That's telling us something. Mm -hmm. And if we're not listening to that information, then we can't correct what we're, we're doing wrong and be more effective. We're so, uh, we self-sabotage ourselves so frequently because we fail to listen. Yeah. It, simply put, if we're not listening, we're not learning. Mm, or vice 100%. versa. If we're not learning, we're not listening. So anytime we find ourselves in that validation mentality or that blame mentality, it doesn't, you might be right. You might be validating how you already thought or felt or thought you might be blaming, blaming somebody. And that blame could be hundred percent correct yeah. to, to go full circle. You might catch somebody lying and say, you're lying to me. And you might be 100% right. They're lying to you. How does that help? If we're in a situation where we're just stopping at the label I was right. They're lying. I knew everything. I saw how this was going to go. Congratulations on being right. Now what? If we're not still listening to learn and see what new opportunities or outcomes we can create, we're not listening. 100%. There's a quote and I'm going to butcher it, butcher it. And I don't know who said it. And maybe you've heard it and you can help me. It is something along the lines of, 
I never learned anything from hearing myself talk. And it's so true. I mean, we can only communicate the information we know. We can't learn anything from the information that we already know. Agreed. All right. Okay. Believe it or not, we are already at the top of the hour, which is crazy. And I'm about a 10th of the way through the list (laughs) of things that we have, but I will, um, we're going to get to some good stuff, some more great stuff. Let's see two weeks from now. Okay. All right. Well, Mike, I will see you, see you in a couple of weeks. I appreciate it. It's great to see you again. Thank you for having me back on. It's always a pleasure. All right, everyone stay tuned. Usually what we do is we have a guest host every other week, but I really don't want to make you guys wait a whole month to hear the second part of this session with Michael. So stay tuned. Again, thank you for listening. You can find all the information about Michael and his book in the show notes for today. We hope you'll join us next time, but until then, live and lead with an open heart and an open mind.